Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here today with two of our awesome co-hosts, Dr. Sajin Bakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hello. And we also have an awesome co-host with us, um, Dr. Stephanie Campbell. Hi, thanks for having me. Great for being here. And we have a, an amazing special guest with us, um, Mr. Ian Ashby, one of our amazing paramedics at American. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking about amputations. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do! The brave men and women of the double A Are the best at what they do in EMS today The finest place in the world to be Is right here as a part of American's family Help is on the way, got a unit and route No matter the problem, when in doubt we send them out Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme Ten minutes or less, every call, every time This is my career path, this is what I do The double A's, red, white, and blue Get your call on Here comes American Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. So let's first introduce um, our special co-host, Dr. Stephanie Campbell. Tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Stephanie Campbell. I'm a doctor doing my residency training. I'm in my second year at UCSF Fresno. Actually uh, fell in love with emergency medicine as an EMT in Connecticut. Uh, shout out to the Cromwell Emergency Department. Really excited to be here. I love working with all of our EMS um, and learn so much from working with them. So I'm excited to be part of this. Great. And Ian, thank you for being here. Um, please tell us about yourself. Um, my name is Ian Ashby. I've been born and raised here in Fresno for the past 27 years. I've worked at American for a total of about seven years now. Five years of that, I've held my paramedic license. Uh, came here straight out of high school back in about 2013 uh, through uh, Clovis North Medical Careers Program and haven't really left since. It's fantastic. Fresno's a place that's amazing. So for those of you listening that aren't from Fresno, you should come check it out. Um, all right, well, go ahead and tell us about your case. Tell us about the amputation case you had. So I had a case uh, several years ago where a gentleman was attempting to commit suicide with a shotgun. Family member found him out in the yard with it, so they started to wrestle over the barrel of the gun, and his finger, his thumb, was over the muzzle, and the shotgun went off, and subsequently it blew his thumb off. And after that, the struggle stopped, and he, the family had called PD and called 911. Once the scene was secure, we went in, and they directed the patient towards me. They had already had the thumb wrapped up a little bit, so I went and I looked at the thumb, and just below the uh, joint in the thumb, there was like a perfect crescent moon shape. But actually, it looked like it was in the perfect shape of what the barrel was. PD tried to locate the other end, but we assumed that it had been... Um, obliterated. Uh, There wouldn't have been anything salvageable. So we just wrapped up the thumb, very minimal bleeding, vital signs were okay. And a lot of it had to, a lot of the treatment was more directed towards the patient's uh, psychiatric state and talking to uh, him and getting him to the hospital and allowing him to speak about the events as much as he felt comfortable and just monitoring vital signs. Yeah, those can be very stressful cases because you kind of have two complaints going at the same time. You have the amputation plus the mental health issue. Um, so that's definitely important to address. Any questions from the group? Was he willing to be transported or did you have to convince him? Uh, he seemed pretty willing at the time. He was kind of spaced out, not really paying much attention to anybody. He seemed kind of locked into his own head about the whole event, thousand yard stare. 
Um, he was still cooperative and calm. He was receptive to any sort of questioning, but he felt like he needed to go and be seen after that. Well, thank you so much for being here and thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. All right. Well, Dr. Campbell, why don't you lead us off and um, tell us about this topic? Absolutely. So as most of you probably know, traumatic amputation is the traumatic removal of a body part, and that most commonly refers to an extremity. Amputations are potentially devastating injuries with lifelong consequences, and they're true surgical emergencies because reimplantation must be performed within hours to have a good chance at salvaging the amputated part. So an efficient and effective approach to this presentation by the EMS crew can be both life and limb-saving. Right, and like the case that Ian had with just the thumb, like we knew that's not going to be reimplanted, right? They can't find the part, but obviously if it's a bigger upper extremity and they have the arm, you know, be much more important to bring that in and do that in a a very fast fashion. So how often does this happen? Um, Dr. Bakta, why don't you tell us about epidemiology? So there are about 83,000 traumatic amputations in the U.S. every year. We don't have the exact numbers um, from American Ambulance in the Fresno area, but we do know that about 6,600 patients were transported using the trauma protocol, and this is what the amputations would fall under. They usually occur in young or middle-aged adults. There is a predominance 5 to 1 male to female ratio. We think because of the high-risk activities that males tend to do compared to females. But the most common causes are uh, motor vehicle accidents and then followed by industrial or agricultural accidents, followed by firearms or fireworks or explosives. And then the most common type of amputation is a partial hand amputation, just like how Ian talked about. And so why does all this matter? You know, amputations can be associated with major bleeding, um, and that also obviously can lead to a life um, threat. Um, they also can cause significant disability if the part's um, not able to be successfully reimplanted. But um, that disability, I think, is something we try to be very cognizant of with ER, is like how to make this the most functional appendage as possible. Um, so let's talk about tourniquet use, Dr. Armenian. So if you use a tourniquet early, it's associated with a 90% survival rate. And in a little bit, we'll talk more about how to properly apply a tourniquet and why you should be reaching for one early in your care of a patient with a traumatic amputation. Um, But basically, they save lives and they've been shown to be safe and effective in modern studies. Now, our goal is to aim for less than six hours of ischemia time to allow the best chance of successful reimplantation. And this is a big deal when it comes to looking for that missing digit uh, and then trying to reimplant it. Let's explore more about the significant physical and psychological morbidity that can happen to these patients. So phantom limb pain is experienced by up to 85% of traumatic amputation survivors. What we mean when we say phantom limb pain is that they are experiencing pain that seems to be coming from the limb or the other body part that is no longer there. Uh, Phantom limb pain occurs more often if there's significant pain from the limb prior to amputation or if there's continued or residual pain in the stump after the amputation. Uh, We also know that phantom limb pain is more common after an upper as compared to a lower extremity amputation, and it can present much later, weeks to months after the initial injury and amputation. The cause of the pain uh, is still under a lot of investigation, but it's likely multifactorial, and it's often quite difficult to control. You feel so bad, right? These patients already lost an extremity. I couldn't imagine trying to feel pain from an extremity that's not even present. What about the psychological standpoint? 
So we do know that PTSD is experienced by up to 25% of amputees and depression by up to half. So this type of injury has a huge impact on the person's quality of life. Dr. Bhatia, why don't you break down the different types of amputations for us? Sure. So first, we like to divide uh, amputations into complete versus partial. So in a complete amputation, the body part is fully severed from the body. Um, and then in a partial amputation, there's still some tissue that's been attached or that stays attached. Um, we see partial amputations a lot when we see um, agricultural or large uh, machine accidents where there's a, a blade of some sort that maybe gets halfway through a limb, but not all the way through a limb. The second characteristic of amputation refers to the mechanism. So as you were mentioning, there's sharp or guillotine amputations, relatively clean edge, wound edges, and are caused by big machines, sharp tools, knives, axes. Um, because of the sharp margins, uh, these are most likely to be successfully re-implanted. The other mechanism is a crush or an avulsion or blast amputations. All those cause more widespread tissue damage and mangling and less likely to be amenable to reimplantation. And then the third characteristic that can be used to describe amputation is the cause of the injury. Mechanical, uh, which is the most common that we've been discussing so far, but can also be high voltage injuries, chemical exposures, or thermal exposures can also cause amputations. Let's kind of go through the assessment um, of these cases of like a complete amputation. So in the case of a complete amputation, it's you really have to quickly assess the viability of the injured limb and have a general sense of whether there's a chance of salvage or reimplantation. Now in the hospital, there's a clinical decision tool called the MESS score, M-E-S-S -S score, uh, which stands for Mangled Extremity Severity Score. And this is used to estimate the viability of a limb after trauma. It was developed in, in 1990 by a vascular surgeon in Seattle, a Dr. Johnson, who created it after witnessing multiple trauma victims die after what he saw as misguided prolonged attempts to save a lower extremity. So some of the factors um, that we use in the hospital setting, uh, which are important to you know ascertain this information in the pre-hospital setting, are ischemia time, signs of limb ischemia on exam, the patient's age, um, if they are in shock and it's probably going to be a hemorrhagic shock in this case, and then the injury mechanism. And basically, you get points um, on each thing. When this was initially developed, they used a cutoff score of seven um, to figure out um, if that limb was worth re-implanting or not. Um, but now surgical techniques have advanced, and so there is no real cutoff number anymore. Um, surgeons will actually just determine if, if something can be Reimplanted or at least attempt a reimplantation on a case by case basis. But all of these pieces of information are still useful. Dr. Cam, why don't you tell us about um, upper extremities? Absolutely. So, upper extremities are of such high functional importance that reimplantation is often very aggressively attempted, especially on proximal lesions. Um, so, those that are involving most or the entire arm. This is not necessarily true with partial digit amputations. We'll get, come back to that, but let's talk for a minute about large extremity amputations, um, arms and legs for a minute. Uh, these surprisingly do not always bleed as much as you would expect. Remember that arteries have a muscular blood vessel wall, so the cut blood vessel can spasm, kind of clamp down, and pull back into the injured part. 
this slows or even stops the bleeding. So it's important to continuously monitor the area to see if that bleeding that has stopped maybe has restarted, and then you may need to apply pressure and usually a tourniquet. On that same note, some of the veins in the arms and the legs don't always have that same musculature. So the veins just kind of tend to ooze and ooze and ooze and they don't really stop. And um, some of the bigger veins, like the saphenous vein can bleed so much you think it's an arterial bleed. (laughs) Um, So... And significant amounts of blood loss can come from just plain venous bleeding. It seems like you don't have to always be an artery to have the patient lose quite a bit of blood loss that can lead them into hemorrhagic shock. That is definitely something to be aware of. Let's talk about the digits. I feel like we see this much more common. Dr. Armenian. Yeah, this is something we see all the time. Um, and typically, it's, it's like a fingertip or a partial finger amputation. And the bleeding can usually be stopped with direct pressure. And in the hospital... Um, Partial finger amputations, especially fingertips, are often not reimplanted because the possibility of side effects and adverse outcomes outweigh the potential benefit. Um, what's really important is is just to think about like how your hand works. Like you need to be able to grasp with your you know thumb and at least two other fingers. So if those digits are involved, then priority is placed on reimplanting those. So really, the goal is always to think what is going to be the optimal function. And that makes sense, I think, especially in the land of technology, that if you put on a tip that you can't feel and you can't move, it's kind of like a dead tip that, yeah, is viable sitting on your finger, but it's not functional. If you want to type, if you want to use your iPhone, that's it'd be better to have a little shortened of a finger that has more of a stump. Let's go through the protocol, Dr. Botka. So there isn't a specific protocol for a traumatic amputation. We will be following our trauma protocol. So of course, we're going to start with our ABCs, make sure our airway is secure. Um, and then really, the topic that we're talking about today is, is the third section, which is controlling the bleeding. Um, so of course, we're going to start with direct pressure, bandage any injuries as time allows, try to obtain hemostasis or stop the bleeding just through pressure first. Again, if it's life or limb threatening, we're going to advance that even more, as we'll talk about in a second. Uh, the rest of the trauma protocol involves spinal immobilization, uh, pain medicine, and then transport. Okay, so one of the main am- amputation considerations is what do you do with that tip of the extremity that you found? So you're going to wrap that in dry sterile gauze, put that in a plastic bag, then put that bag on ice if possible. If you don't have ice, you don't have it. But the main thing is, is that you never put the actual tissue on ice itself. It's got to be wrapped and then in a bag, and then that bag should be on ice. This is something that I feel like I learned the hard way because one time we did have a case that um, arrived uh, where the tip of the finger was on ice directly, and then we weren't able to refer for reimplantation. And remember the pathophys of this because ice causes vasoconstriction, and right, so it's going to be really cold, and then the blood vessels left in that amputated part are going to vasoconstrict or clamp down, so that tissue is going to die faster. The ischemia time is going to be much greater. Whereas if you keep it wrapped in gauze and you put on ice, it's going to stay cool, but it's not actually going to cause damage to the tissue itself. I'm very curious about tourniquets because I feel like when we started training many moons ago, Dr. Me and I, tourniquets were out. They were not recommended. And now tourniquets are the way to go. And so Dr. Campbell, kind of tell us about why the why the change, of course. Why are tourniquets so amazing? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we love tourniquets now. Um, they're 
truly the mainstay of the initial management for a traumatic amputation that's bleeding significantly. Historically, as you mentioned, there are concerns that they were potentially life-threatening. There's this idea that if you put a tourniquet on, you're basically sacrificing that limb. Um, and it made people think that they shouldn't be applying tourniquets. But more recently, and actually for over a decade, the evidence, um, which is mostly from combat use of tourniquets, shows that they're safe and effective and often life-saving when they're applied early and correctly. We have U.S. military data that shows that when a tourniquet was applied before the person went into hemorrhagic shock, they were nine times more likely to survive. And these studies also show that the tourniquet can remain on the limb for up to two hours without any increased risk of requiring amputation of the limb. So that really directly challenges that concern that people had that when you put this tourniquet on, you know, you're sacrificing the limb. And that makes sense, right? Because like in the hospital, when they do total knee replacements, you know, those tourniquets are up so that the surgeon can have a bloodless field, right? So they can operate on that bone and do a good job. And they're up for like three to four hours. And so tourniquet times can go longer for surgeries. And so we know that the, the distal limb, it, it does not get injured. Why don't we go through the proper um, use of tourniquets? Just to remind everybody how to put one on if we haven't put one on in a while. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like in our story, this can be a very charged situation. So you want to have this on lock and feel really confident about what you're doing when you're applying a tourniquet. Um, so first, you know, always you do elevation and direct pressure. But if that doesn't control the bleeding, and especially if you're observing bright red blood spurting from the wound, you know, indicating an arterial bleed or... Um, like Dr. Bakhto was saying, if you were seeing just, you know, a lot of bleeding, it, it still could be venous, but it, regardless, it's definitely time to place a tourniquet. Um, so you want to open up the tourniquet and place it around the limb, place it as close to the wound as possible, preferably within one to two inches. Um, but ideally not directly over a joint because you just can't get a proper compression of the tissues as well. If you're right on a joint. You tighten the tourniquet first by pulling the free end, really until it's quite tight. A common mistake is not tightening the tourniquet enough during the initial application, and then you can't get it as clamped down as it needs to be um, in the second step, which is turning the windlass, and that's that stick that's attached to the tourniquet. And the way you know it's on tight enough is you've completely stopped the distal pulse. The next thing you want to do is write the application time on the tourniquet. That's really important so you can keep track of the ischemia time. And if the bleeding continues, don't mess with that tourniquet you put on. Just apply a second tourniquet. And this is often required for someone who's very muscular um, or very obese, you know, just a, a large person for whatever reason. If the tourniquet is not tight enough, you do have some risks of um, causing more issues and the biggest one would be paradoxical bleeding. And that is when you don't have enough pressure to cut off the arterial flow. Because we know arteries, you know, they have that muscular wall. They take more pressure to compress. But you do have enough pressure to reduce the venous flow. And you can end up having um, devastating hemorrhages or even compartment syndrome, which is when there's too much pressure in a muscular compartment. And that leads to more tissue damage. And then the last thing to remember is you really don't want to loosen a tourniquet for any reason. We at the trauma center will take that tourniquet off when it's appropriate. So it sounds like if you've made the decision that this person needs a tourniquet, just apply it really tightly from the get-go and then do not mess with it until you hand off that patient. That's exactly right. You really don't want to go halfway with your tourniquet. If you're applying a tourniquet, apply it tight and leave it on. 
that the worst thing you could do is to not put it tight enough. And so I was like in the ER to practice, like someone puts their finger actually on the distal pulse, right? So if it's on an upper extremity and that's, or it's something that's bleeding, then you're going to crank it until there's no blood. And I like to crank it one more time. And then if the patient is not in pain, you probably did not put it on right. It's very, very painful. If you can imagine if, if, if you ever put a rubber band around your wrist, right? It starts hurting after a while. If you cut off blood flow to anything, it's really painful. So they're just sitting there chilling and not complaining of pain. It's probably not tight enough. So the tourniquet use in our SEMSA protocol states that to, so to stop the bleeding, we're first going to apply direct pressure and cover the wound with a clean gauze. Um, we can elevate it if possible. And we're putting pressure with both hands. We don't lift the gauze to see if it stopped bleeding. We just keep pressure on it. Now, if the blood is now soaking through your gauze, you're not able to get control with just the direct pressure, that's when we're going to be moving on to using a tourniquet. These tourniquets, just as Dr. Campbell mentioned, you're going to apply it about two to three inches above the site that is bleeding. As long as you're not directly on a joint, you can always go above the joint if you need to. Um, And then there are certain cases where maybe the wound is too high. Maybe the amputation is so high that you just can't get a tourniquet on the limb that's still there, the part of the limb that's still there. For those, we pack the wound with hemostatic gauze if it's available, or pack it with plain gauze and then continue that pressure with both hands. What we'll do in the hospital is we'll get hemostatic gauze, we'll pack the wound, um, we'll put more gauze on top of that, we wrap that up really tightly with Coban, and then wrap that up again with ACE wrap until we can get definitive control tourniquet placement. In this podcast, we've talked about it a bunch of different times. You know, all of us doctors on the podcast say we want you to put that tourniquet as close to the wound as possible. Now, the SEMSA, the Central California EMS Agency Protocol, says put the tourniquet two to three inches above the bleeding site. And then PHTLS, Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support, in all their teachings and courses, they say place the tourniquet at the groin or the axilla. So basically, they place it high and tight. So why the discrepancy of location, you ask? You know, all the sources, whether you're talking about pre-hospital trauma life support, talking about SEMSA, or the medical field, they all say tourniquets are amazing. But the difference in everyone's opinion is location. This actually does make a lot of sense. PHTLS does not want you to waste precious time trying to locate the bleeding, locate that wound, figure out where it is in the extremity. They just want you to place that tourniquet in the axilla or place the tourniquet in the groin. However, SEMSA and us doctor's opinion assume that you can tell where the bleeding is coming from. So if you actually can see the hole and you know where the bleeding is coming from, you can go ahead and put that tourniquet much closer to the wound. So in an acute pre-hospital setting, this is not always practical. You may not be in a situation where you can take off the pant leg and really find out is the wound in the thigh or is the wound in the calf. So if you can locate the bleeding in a fast manner, place the tourniquet above the wound. If there's bleeding from extremity and the exact location is very hard to pinpoint, place it just like um, PHTLS says in the groin or the axilla. Place it high and tight. And just for everybody to remember that, you know, the average human has about five liters of blood in them. And so think about those two liter bottles of soda. That's only like two and a half bottles of soda. That's not very much. If you think about it, I feel like we always think we have more blood in our body. And so when you come upon a scene and there's a large amount of blood on the ground, just know that they might have lost half their blood volume acutely. And so you've got to control bleeding fast. You don't really can't give it time to declare itself or it's going to stop on its own. So feel free to do an intervention sooner. And as we know from Dr. Campbell's studies, she mentioned that the sooner you get this tourniquet on before they get into shock, the higher they're likely to survival. So let's go through some take-home points. Can't miss. Uh, What do we want everyone to remember? I think that the most important thing is just to get that tourniquet on really tight. You know, Dr. Campaign talked about if that patient's not uncomfortable, you're probably not doing it right. And so just making sure that, you know, someone is 
feeling that distal pulse or is able to see that distal pulse. And so you know when you've got it on tight enough. Um, I think that's the most important thing to remember. I think my take-home point is to not be scared to use the tourniquet. Uh, if there's a partial amputation, you may be hesitant, uh, thinking that you're going to, as we mentioned, sacrifice the limb or cause more damage. But really, if they're losing a lot of blood from that injury, the most important thing, the best thing you can do for them is put that tourniquet on. Dr. Armenian. Uh, my take-home point is that if there is a complete amputation, then uh, try to rinse that that body part with saline, wrap it in gauze, put it in a bag, and then put the bag on ice and bring that into the hospital. And one of my take-home points is, you know, recognize that even if bleeding has stopped, there may be quite a bit of blood loss. This might still be a stat trauma patient, even though the bleeding is not acutely. And so if you're in a system that has a local trauma center, make sure you get them there. Well, thanks everyone for coming in today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.